This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 19th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Kelly Cervic discusses a new problem in reproducibility, mouse microbiomes. And Jessica Bodie is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Jessica Bodie, an intern for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the beginning of the alphabet soup. DNA codes for RNA, RNA codes for proteins. That's how the genetic code works these days. But in the past, way back about 4 billion years ago, things were a little different, more like RNA does it all. Why is RNA likely the first biomolecule, Jess? Yeah, so as we know, life is pretty much made possible by that combination of RNA, DNA, and proteins today. But RNA also has characteristics of both DNA and proteins. So it stores information just like DNA does, but it can also act like a protein as well by speeding up chemical reactions. And a lot of essential enzymes are also made up of RNA, like ribosomes, which actually build proteins. RNA is really core to a lot of stuff that happens in the cell, both in structure and action. That's kind of led some scientists to believe that at one point in our history, RNA really did everything. It was an RNA world. So it really just did everything on ourselves without the help of DNA or proteins, which maybe came later and were able to be more specialized. But the evidence that RNA can do all that has been mixed. Everyone's looking for this thing called an RNA copier. What's that? Scientists have trouble getting an RNA molecule to replicate other RNAs to be able to copy each other, which, you know, if at one point our world was just run by RNA, they would have to copy each other to procreate. So it's kind of an issue if scientists can't get RNA to replicate each other because that would kind of disprove their theory that everything was RNA at one point. In the 90s, Harvard researchers got a ribozyme, which is kind of like an enzyme made of RNA, and they called it RNAP, which is RNA polymerase. And this RNAP was able to join small pieces of RNA together using a template strand. Scientists since then have been building off of that to stitch together longer and longer strands. But 
The issue with that kind of RNA copier is that it's picky and it can only do certain sequences. And, you know, if it was to back up this RNA world theory, it should be able to do pretty much any sequence. And that brings up the new molecule. And this new molecule that's been developed is pretty amazing. It can copy any other piece of RNA? Pretty much, yeah. Except itself, which is kind of the catch. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah, this new study, these researchers did this thing where they evolved in a test tube a bunch of different RNAPs. And so they would put them through rounds and get them to copy a bunch of different RNAs. They would do multiple rounds of this. They ended up doing 24 different rounds, actually. The catch is the RNAP could only make it to the next round if it successfully copied an RNA. So at the end of this, after rounds and rounds, they came up with one RNAP that could copy pretty much anything because it had been selected to be able to copy so many things after so many rounds. And it's called 24-3 polymerase. And it's, like I said, it's pretty much able to copy almost any strand of RNA besides itself. So it's also really useful for a few reasons besides just copy a lot of different kind of RNAs. It can actually copy tiny little catalysts, which are a type of RNA, but it can also copy big, lengthy enzyme sequences. But the cool thing is that it can do is that it can also copy copies. So it can kind of exponentially increase the replicas of an RNA sequence by 10,000-fold, which is kind of similar to PCR, which is a technique that amplifies DNA in that same way. Going back to kind of the beginning of the story, is this confirmation that Earth was once an RNA world? It's not a full confirmation, they don't think, but it's it's a really giant leap towards that confirmation because that specific RNAP that they found, it can't replicate literally anything and it can't replicate itself. But just proving that an RNA molecule can replicate a huge library of RNAs is really good evidence for the theory. Next up, we have a story on how to give away money. Homelessness has serious consequences, both for the homeless person or family and for society. What are some of these costs, Jessica, to being homeless? People affected by homelessness can actually have shortened lifespans. And also for kids in school, it can really negatively affect their performance. But also, you know, in society, single period of homelessness can cost taxpayers more than $20,000 because of policing, you know, welfare, shelters, health care, that kind of thing. And many organizations do try to help, but there's not really any data on whether or not a cash influx would help people on the brink of homelessness from staying off the streets. And the study that we're going to talk about today looked at a natural experiment to see if giving money to people who are about to become homeless can be an effective strategy to keep them in homes and maybe save money in a larger way. How, how is this a natural experiment? Uh, yeah, so the researchers basically just took down data on something that was that was already happening, whether anyone was reporting it or not. So this program in Chicago where one-time cash quantities were given to people on the brink of homelessness that could still demonstrate that they would pay rent in the future. Maybe they were just affected by, you know, a crisis like an extreme medical bill. But they were given a cash influx depending on whether the program had funds or not. The researchers looked at whether funds were available to give versus when they were not. And they also looked at if those funds that, if they're available, helped the people that were on the brink of homelessness stay off the streets. And how long did they look at the result of this cash influx? So they looked for two years. And what they found was that those who got the cash infusion were 88% less likely to become homeless for three months and 76% less likely after six months. 
And still, two years later, there's still no evidence that the effect fades. They're still less likely to become homeless. This seems to keep people off the streets, but is the other question also answered? Does it save money in the long run to give a short-term infusion of cash? Yeah, so according to this study, it totally does. So on average, it costs about 10300 bucks to save a person from the brink of homelessness with all the costs of maintaining the funding and the call centers. And that's significantly lower than the twenty grand that it would cost society if that person were homeless. Lastly, we have a story on the end of an empire. We're talking about the Wari Empire. Where and when were the Wari? The Wari were an ancient Andean people, and they lived in what would today be Peru, but 600 CE, which is about 800 years before the Incan people. And they ranged from 600 CE to 1000 CE when their society ultimately collapsed. And they were very resourceful. They expanded their reach to the Peruvian highlands all the way to the coast, sometimes by force and other times by peacefully setting up farmland and irrigation systems and extending those benefits to the people who live there already. Right. And the big question we're going to ask is, what happened to this empire? Why did it end in 1000 CE? And uh, what happened to its people? Uh, Let's start with a smaller one. What kind of evidence do we have that show kind of the decline of this culture over time? Yeah. So there were a few red flags that researchers touched upon when looking at this society. They first looked at some skulls that they found of these ancient people, and they found that a huge number of the skulls had fatal fractures, fatal head injuries, and that actually post-collapse, 40% of adults and 44% of children had these fatal head injuries. And, you know, that's more than just the -the run-of-the-mill community unrest, probably indicative of a civil war or maybe a conquering outsider. Additionally, there was also some evidence lying in the way the bodies were treated. Wari people typically buried their dead respectfully with offerings and bundled the bodies in textiles. But a lot of these bodies post-collapse of the society were found tossed in ditches and their bones had strange cut marks, which indicated the flesh might have been stripped from the bones. And that kind of corpse desecration kind of shows that some attack or invasion had completely disrupted the Wari society. So lastly, scientists were able to look at what the worry ate and how their diet was affected by the societal collapse. Scientists took a look inside their bone cartilage and looked at which isotopes were present, which could tell them what they ate. Before the collapse, they mostly ate maize, which showed up in their bones as carbon isotopes, and llama and alpaca meat, which was signified by nitrogen isotopes. But after the collapse, the bodies had crazy high levels of nitrogen, And that could be from a number of things. You know, they thought maybe they were eating more fish or trading them on the coast, or they could be fertilizing their crops differently. Or the high nitrogen levels could actually be a sign that these people were starving because nitrogen is generated when the body is out of fuel and has and has to burn fat and muscle instead. All of these things kind of indicate something's not right, that it's on the decline. And many of these changes link with climate change. So what kind of things did they see that pointed to climate change changing for them? And also, what do we know about the climate of that time? Researchers think that a drought could have brought all of this on, you know, the stress of that drought affecting availability of crops could have caused a lot of violence within the people. Uh, This isn't the first time an old civilization has had to deal with climate change. Why do researchers think the Wari didn't make it? Even though the Wari themselves built an empire during a drought, originally using complex irrigation techniques, it was the eventual falling apart of their political system, the researchers think, in addition to a drought that probably contributed to its collapse. 
that combined one-two punch of intense change in their political structure and a stressful drought that limited resources could have tipped the empire's behavior from social cooperation to just indiscriminate violence. Okay. So what else is on the site this week, Jessica? In the latest news, we've got a story about how dogs prefer belly rubs to treats and also one on how the anthrax genome reveals secrets about a Soviet bioweapons accident. On Science Insider, our science policy blog, there's a story on funding for scientists affected by Brexit and another story about the DEA's verdict on marijuana research. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Sarah. Jessica Bodie is an intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Okay, Jimmy, let's start out with why it probably would have been a good idea for you to have Blue Apron this month. Okay, so my wife went out of town, and I basically turned into a uh, human monster. I guess that's the best way to describe it. Like, I was just eating every gross thing a person can eat. I turned into one of those people that's like, can I just lick a rock and that's some calories? Like, is that something? Right, so if you had had Blue Apron for less than $10 a meal, you would have had healthy food pre-portioned meals made from delicious seasonal ingredients at less than $10. And I'm sure you did not spend less than $10 when you went out for fast food. I can tell you this, Sarah. I spent more than $10 every meal I ate out. That is sad. (laughs) The best thing about Blue Apron, which I've done in the past, has been that like all of their uh, seafood is sourced sustainably, and they partner with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch so that they can keep tabs on that. Beef is raised humanely, chickens are free-range, pork is raised naturally, and that matters. Who knows what kind of stuff I was ingesting for all the money I was pouring out of my pockets on it. Right, and they actually have done research on Blue Apron, and it shows that Blue Apron families cook together three times more often, which, as you know, is a really good experience and a good way to bond with people who live in your house. Yeah. As well as being inexpensive and seasonal and all that stuff. What do they have on the menu this month, Jimmy? Well, if you are a person whose wife has left them alone and you don't want to just eat whatever strange cotton candy you can buy at a gas station, (laughs) maybe you want to get spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad. Oh, Oh, man. I might need to get some Blue Apron. Summer vegetable and quinoa bowl. With fairy tale fairy tale eggplants, shishito peppers, and corn. I want to get that just so I know what fairy tale eggplants are. Mm-hmm. And chicken tinga tacos with summer squash and tomato salsa. Man, those are three good meals. Definitely, definitely. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better better way way to cook. cook. (laughs) (laughs) We did it. (laughs) This story combines two things we seem to talk about a lot here on the podcast, reproducibility and the microbiome. The big question we're going to take on today is how reproducible are mouse studies when the mouse microbiome isn't taken into account. Staff writer Kelly Servick is here to talk about the beginnings of what promises to be a long battle with mouse-dwelling bugs. So Kelly, can you give us some examples of how 
changing a mouse's microbiome, you know, has affected different studies. Sure. Yeah, like you said, this line of research is pretty new, but there are already some pretty surprising examples out there of how how the microbiome might have an effect. Um, This one researcher that I talked to was doing a study about how a certain drug influences bone density in mice. And she ran the experiment by giving mice this drug and then testing their bone density. She ran it three different times in three batches of mice from the same strain, the same age, the same vendor. They were in the same kind of cages. Um, And she got three completely different results from the three different runs. In the first run, they lost bone density. The second run, they gained bone density. In the third one, there was no difference between the control mice and the treated mice. And she tracked this down and figured out it was microbiome related? Yeah. What she thinks is that um, she basically analyzed the feces from the three different groups of control mice and realized that the mice were coming into the study with different compositions of microbes in their guts. So when she gave them the drug, it affected them differently. So you can see how if she hadn't been you know, analyzing yeah. the feces of these mice and had just run that study on that first group, she would think simple, straightforward response, right? Yeah. They lose bone density. So that's the kind of thing that, that can happen if you're not sort of looking at this potential variable. Right. And that's not a totally sad story, right, at the end? <laughs> it's actually not a, not a sad story because, and I think a lot of these situations aren't sad stories if the researcher sort of has the resources to look into it. Um, it ends up being a whole other study you can do about how these microbes are influencing the biology of the mouse and potentially modeling the way that our microbiome might influence our biology. At least that's the hope. (laughs) So if the mouse microbiome can affect research results, what can affect the mouse microbiome? Yeah, there are so many variables in the environment that can influence the microbiome. As you would expect, a change in diet can change the composition of microbes in the gut. But in lab mice, you know, in the course of their lives, they're getting exposed to different environments, um, different rooms in the breeding facility might have different microbes. They get put in a box and driven to the lab. What's in that box? And then they get to the lab and there's different bedding and the water comes from a different source. Mice that are housed together end up taking on one another's uh, Mm -hmm. microbes uh, because they have a tendency to eat one another's feces. So it matters, you know, which kinds of mouse you're housing together and Even the process of implanting embryos into the surrogate mother, the pups that come out of the same mother are going to have very similar microbiomes. Ones that are born from different parents are going to have different microbiomes. There's just so much. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that are done just as a matter of course these days to standardize mice and their conditions? Sure. And this is, you know, for a long time, people have known that mice are very sensitive to all the different variables in their care. So the veterinary staff that takes care of animals is very careful to make sure that to the extent possible, they all have the exact same type of bedding. Often the bedding material is irradiated to be sterilized. The source of water is typically always the same. You know, the light and dark cycles of the lab are important. So I I learned that if you want to work on your mice at night, if you need to do some experiment, you have to wear like a little red headlamp and go in there. You can't turn on any lights because that's going to throw off sort of the circadian rhythm of the mouse. So people are are very careful about all of those things already. The question is just how far can you go to control every variable? There are genetically standardized mice. Are there mice that have a set of uh, identical microbes? I mean, how much variation is out there? Is that something that vendors are trying to control? It's something that I know researchers are starting to look at. There was a study last year that took mice from vendors and analyzed their feces to find out which microbes were in each sort of set of mice. These were mice that were of the same strain. You would expect them to be very similar. And they found that, in fact, the the richness, the amount of variety and richness in those microbiomes was very different. 
And there was also difference. There were also differences in the abundance of certain microbes. A lot of those microbes, we don't know what the significance of them is, but some of them we do. So, for example, there's this type of bacteria called segmented filamentous bacteria, SFB. It sort of sticks onto the lining of the guts of mice and lots of other animals and plays a big role in how their immune system develops, how they produce certain antibodies and immune cells. And it's now known that one of the major vendors of mice, SFB, is totally absent. Hmm. And the other three big ones, they're there. So do you want that there? If, if you're doing an immunology study and you're not thinking about <laughs> what what's inside your mice, that could potentially be an uncontrolled variable. Well, can't we... Can't we just kill them all, Kelly? Can't we just get rid of all these microbes and just start with very clean mice? Yeah, so a mouse without a microbiome would be a very limited research tool. Um, we want lab animals to represent human biology to the extent possible, and we, I think, have pretty rich microbiomes. So researchers are, are starting to suspect that in trying to make animal facilities cleaner and cleaner, uh, we've also gotten rid of some of the microbes that might be important. There was a really interesting study published this April from this group at the University of Minnesota that went and got pet store mice, which have been exposed to all kinds of infections that typically would not be allowed in a lab mouse. They co-housed them with lab mice. That experience killed about a quarter of the lab mouse colony. Oh. Um, but the survivors ended up having these more developed immune systems that the researchers are arguing is a better model for the human immune system. Right. They looked at pathogens, right, bacteria and viruses that we know to be potentially harmful to mice. But the question is, you know, are the commensal species in their gut also changing and, and is more diversity better? Right. You interviewed a lot of animal caretakers for this study, the people on the ground trying to keep mice healthy and suitable for research. What have been some of their reactions to this you know, new understanding, this shift in thinking about what kinds of things we want in and on our mice? It was interesting. This was the first story that I got to talk to a lot of lab animal veterinarians. And I learned that a lot of them are really engaged with the researchers sort of beyond looking at the welfare of these animals. They're also sometimes sort of troubleshooting when something goes wonky and they can't get the same results they got before. Um, so I think in general, I mean, if there's a variable that might be affecting results, they're very open to, to studying that and sort of teasing apart the microbiome. I did get some kind of interesting reactions to this quote-unquote dirty mouse study that I mentioned. The idea that it would be useful to have mice with with lots of microbes living on and in them kind of runs counter to the culture of cleanliness that people have been <laughs> trying to maintain for a long time. I had a couple of veterinarians say, you know, we work so hard to keep these facilities so clean and, and to know that the mice are healthy to the extent that we can know that. And when you introduce something new into a facility, it can be really hard to get rid of it. So, I mean, that's why in this study they ended up having this very strict sort of quarantine on the pet store mice. But, I mean, I think the question is how do you bring back diversity in a way that doesn't also reintroduce the bad guys <laughs> back right. into the into or the facility. just swamp out any signal with just such a high level of variability. Right, exactly. You have to know what's in there. If someone else wants to do the study again and they're working with a totally different mouse from a different pet store, right. it's, it's hard. So let's go to the solutions. There's got to be a way. we got to be able to have models to work with that have some variability but also some control over what's going on inside. What kind of proposals are there for making sure that the mouse microbiome won't interfere with reproducibility, reliability of experimental results? There are some things that people can do already when you're studying the activity of a particular gene, for example. 
it's important that mice with and without that gene should be bred from the same parents so that they develop similar microbiota, and then you can sort of eliminate that as a variable. So for certain studies, that that would be an important first step. Another thing that some people are proposing, and this is sort of a more general reproducibility principle, is, is that if you want to know that your experiment holds up under slightly different conditions, you've got to repeat it mm-hmm. under those different conditions. So it is possible to re-derive the mice, meaning implant the embryos into different mothers so that they'll take on that, that new microbiome. So there are groups that are trying to create the, you know, the same strain of mouse but implant it into different sets of microbiomes that sort of represent the, the complex microbes that you could get from different vendors. The issue is that that's really expensive still. It's several thousand dollars to do this procedure. So I think like with a lot of reproducibility issues, it's, it's also asking people to spend more and spend more time mm-hmm. um, to tease out these variables. Yeah. And what about on the publishing side? Is there going to be a new uh, kind of duty for people to report more on their microbiomes and their animals? I got some mixed reactions about that, too. I think that the question of reporting is really a big one right now, but it's even a struggle sort of trying to get, I would say, more fundamental things like the the sex of the animals in the experiment and just the basic details of husbandry. So the question of including the composition of the microbiome, I think, is still pretty far down the road. First of all, people aren't really measuring everything that's inside of a mouse. They're looking mostly at bacteria that we know to look for. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of other sort of dark matter in there, viruses and protozoa and other things that people aren't documenting. So even if the journal were to demand that people sequence the microbiomes of their animals, that would still be a very limited kind of reporting and with a kind of an unknown significance. Is there any good news here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the, the good news is that this is this is also an aspect of biology that people are going to want to care about. So I've talked to several people who are getting papers out of this, right? It started with, oh, my gosh, this isn't something is wrong. Mm-hmm. This isn't working. My result is not what I thought it was. And it ended with, you know, I've got another variable to look at and I've got another experiment to do. Right. Um, and I've got more results to publish. Yeah. I mean, if you want to know if the drug that you're working on works differently depending on the microbiotic background, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some people are going to, I think, make careers on this idea. All right, Kelly, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Kelly Cervik is a staff writer at Science. She writes about dealing with dirty mice this week in the magazine. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>